0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Getting ready for the big uh, defense date?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, (laughs) working all day, working all night, trying to get stuff together.
0: You did not sound very excited.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's actually, I've got most of my... Most of my stuff is together. Most of, All the text is written. Now it's just doing things like going through, tweaking figures, uh, you know, formatting, because if you've never submitted a thesis <laughs> or dissertation before, the formatting guidelines are slightly insane.
0: Oh, and it's ridiculous. You'd think that... You'd be really excited but this is really the worst part of it right this is where you still have to look at this crap you've looked at for so long and it's all these little mundane things that you're fixing and it's so
1: you're not doing science you're changing you know the font in a figure for all of your figures Uh,
0: (laughs) and then if they're misaligned by a quarter of an inch the person at the graduate college catches that and yells at you and yeah Mm -hmm.
1: well i will say i had a satisfying exchange with the graduate college we had to submit not a completed draft, but just whatever you had uh, for format review mm-hmm. before you actually defend. so I submitted mine for format review and I got the comments back and there were a few things like, oh, you know this should say dissertation advisor, not thesis advisor and you know a couple of minor things, but then they said on landscape pages, your page number should be in such an orientation and in this position on the page and so I went and looked it up in the handbook and they were wrong.
0: <gasps> oh sure, <laughs> so they loved it when you pointed that out. <laughs> well, I
1: was like I thought I made sure that everything in here complied with the handbook, including that. So I looked it up and sent them an email and they just replied that I was free to disregard that suggestion.
0: <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yes, don't get into an OCD battle. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Uh, Great. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost almost over. You can uh, start enjoying your beer for real after this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and actually next week's show will be recorded a little bit early because it will come out pretty much while I'm defending.
0: (laughs) Uh, Fabulous.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but what have you been up to all week?
0: Oh, having fun out in the field. It's that it's that time of year. Um, so far, we've had some really good weather. Um, it's supposed to be 81 degrees on Saturday. I'm pretty in excited about that. February? Yes. <laughs> in February. I mean, I'm not excited globally. That's bad. But for a right. day out in the field, it's going to be wonderful.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been really warm here, too. We had some thunder snow earlier in the week.
0: Oh, and... that's always fun. I love spring yeah, in Colorado.
1: It's been kind of crazy. But so how many students are you taking out into the field now?
0: It is 40. I have 40 students and me and three TAs. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
1: you're outnumbered 10 to 1.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which they don't fail to remind me. So (laughs) that's pretty fun. But um, I thought that maybe we could talk this week about what this means. You know, what is this mythical field that we go to? (laughs) <laughs> and, and and what am I, you know, getting paid to teach these children?
1: Yeah. So it's funny because as geologists, we talk about going into the field and we all know what each other means. Yeah. And we assume everybody else does too. But I very clearly remember an experience uh, sitting at a very fine establishment that serves beer uh, <laughs> with another geologist and talking about in the field and the bartender deciding that we were farmers.
0: <laughs> That's beautiful.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think it is a good thing to talk about is what, what do we do when we go to the field exactly? Because it's not what most people think probably.
0: Right. Exactly. It's not just hiking. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, it is not just hiking. <laughs> that would be easy comparatively, I think. Yes. Um, so this entire class is called Field Methods, and it's similar to classes at a lot of different places around the country. Right. Because nearly all geologists have to take a thing called field camp and it's their senior capstone course. Right. And, you know, I've recorded shows from here. If you're new to our show um, during the summer, that's where I am. So we record our shows when I'm actually out in the field. And that's pretty fun. But what does the field mean and what are these students learning? And basically they're learning very basic techniques about how to read a topographic map how to use a compass, and then ultimately how to prepare a geologic map.
1: Right. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. Oh, (laughs) great. And say, tell me how many of graduating students (laughs) are ever going to make a geologic map by hand in their life again?
0: I mean, anecdotally, one, maybe? (laughs) Right. That's all I got. (laughs) And actually, uh, the one student who did go on and he did an internship at the usgs making geologic maps so i was super excited you know one of my students going out there and he goes "Eh, if we just mapped on aerial photos on the ipad (laughs) man
1: (laughs) (laughs) now like I I i was playing devil's advocate a little bit because it's still an important set of skills to know and understand because you have to read and interpret geologic maps all the time and there's no substitute for understanding what symbols on a map look like in the field than having to go the other way around.
0: Exactly. So that's the point because a lot of students complain about this class um, because that's what I was just talking about. And as I will complain about on here for the next two months, (laughs) we go out most weekends. And so this is the semester where the students lose all their weekends and then they still have to come to class and listen to me talk about it as well. And they say, I'm never going to need this in real life. Well, you do, because you're not going to be a field mapper, probably. This was a skill that a lot of geologists needed because this is what they did do. Right? I mean, 100 years ago, geologists were field people. They weren't. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. They weren't the computer people that they are now. Um, So no matter what you do in geology, we obviously train a lot of petroleum geologists at the University of Oklahoma. But, you know, all over the country, people are going into economic geology or environmental geology. No matter what you do as a geologist, you're going to consume geologic maps. And so just like you said, John, you need to know how they get made because... Then you can start to know whether you've got a good geologic map or not. What can you trust? What information goes into it? How do you ultimately discern what's happened in that area?
1: Right, exactly. And so going out into the field, with your, you start with a blank topographic map. uh, You can't really just walk around and draw on it. You have to think (laughs) about what you're seeing and how that relates to what's going on underground and if it makes sense or... Is right. there a fault hidden here that you can't see? Uh, it, it really requires temporal and spatial thinking. You have to kind of think in 4D.
0: It really does. And this is really one of the first classes, too. I mean, this is a senior-level class, how we teach it. Not all schools do it this way, where you have to pull everything together. And students have a hard time with this because they're very used to the way <laughs> the way that we do learning in western civilization for i would say for good or for ill but it's definitely for ill they're used to you know i need to know this set of facts for this class i learn these facts i barf these facts i move on to the next class this class really takes in all the geology they've had so far and you have to draw upon all of it which they are not ready for (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> not even close because they're not used to that kind of thinking, which is unfortunate because that's the kind of thinking that you need for the rest of your life, right? These critical thinking skill sets that make you succeed at any job. And so this is one of those classes, all classes require critical thinking, but this one really takes from all the other geology classes um, and teaches you this new skill, which is mapping,
1: Right. So the first thing that comes to mind, you talk about mapping, is what is the most basic thing you have to do when you're outside with your topo map?
0: Right. So (laughs) you want to understand, I mean, because the point is we're making geologic maps, right? So we talked back in episode 32, we talked about the history of this handy dandy little guy, the Brunton Compass, that all the students use and hate. And the first thing that they need to know is how to use a compass to talk about the orientation of rocks.
1: Right. And so we're talking about, in this case, the strike and dip of the rocks.
0: Right. So (laughs) to do a little review of strike and dip, um, like I said, we talked about this before in episode 32. But we use this guide, this Brunton compass, and I've put a link to the uh, Brunton transit manual online. So if you want to go look. At the manual and see these words that we're using, right? Um, we'll give you some time to do that. Okay, great. So you've got that in front of you. Now we're going to talk <laughs> about rocks. So rocks are generally oriented some way in space. And the way, that we or- the way that we describe these are by a strike and dip. Okay? And so if you imagine a rock, it's tilting at 45 degrees. You pass a horizontal plane through that rock. That line, that intersection of that horizontal plane and the dipping face of the rock denotes a line of strike, which is measured as smoothly, 360 degrees. So it has a direction. Right. Makes sense?
1: <laughs> right. And then the dip would be that 45 degree angle, right?
0: Correct. Exactly. So the dip has both a magnitude and a direction. So it's dipping. What's the angle? Dipping at 45 degrees, you can figure this out by using the inclinometer on the compass. The dip is, by definition, perpendicular to the strike, which makes it easy to figure out. Sometimes it seems like it's hard, but if you just remember that, perpendicular to strike. And it's the direction that rock or that water would flow down. If you were to pour water on the rock, it flows in the direction of dip. So you've got a magnitude, 45, and then a compass direction, north, south, east, or west.
1: Right, and that's my favorite way to describe this idea to somebody, is you pour the water on the rock, it runs down. That is the dip angle and direction, and then uh, the strike. See, so you say you have to specify a dip direction, and this is where I didn't a lot of the time. <laughs> uh, you're <because> not alone. Because <laughs> if you're a sensible person and follow the right hand rule, which means you take your right hand, you extend you know, the four fingers that aren't your thumb, and you put them in the direction of dip, your thumb points in the strike direction. Mm -hmm. So let's say your rocks were dipping purely east, then that would be a northward striking bed, not southward striking. If it was southward striking, then the rocks would be dipping west. The challenge is, and you've seen people do this in the field, you know it, somebody's writing down their readings, and they're right-handed, and they hold their left hand out and do this, and it's all backwards.
0: Or, I'm prepared to counter you here, or which right-hand rule are you talking about? The British right-hand rule or the American right-hand rule? They're both different. Oh, yes. I stick my fingers in the direction of strike and my thumb in the direction of dip, and I do it with my left hand because that's how the software (laughs) that we use for our magnetometer wants it (laughs) read. So therefore, that's how I do it.
1: (laughs) Right. So let's say that we're describing with these strike and dip numbers, you would say a rock might be um, like north 30 than whatever the dip angle is, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You can also do dip and dip direction.
0: Yeah. I don't even actually explain this in class because this is sort of a European construct, and it makes perfect sense. But It's
1: beautiful because it's it easier is. to programmatically evaluate.
0: It is, and you just have to do some math to get the strike because strike is always perpendicular to dip and vice versa. It's wonderful. No one gets it. <laughs>
1: Right. <laughs> um, and so the I other don't thing, say those words ever. <laughs> right. And the other thing that we should mention before we get off of strike and dip to further confuse the situation is that there, you said that it was measured as azimuthally. There are people that report strike as azimuthally and in quadrants.
0: Right. Um, so there's two different types of... One of th- these
1: is correct.
0: <laughs> uh- <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... I think that the quadrant system... So there's two types of ways you can read a compass. So as musically, 0 to 360. Well, 1 to 360, I guess, technically. Um, And then there's the quadrant way, which is sort of the old way, where you look at your compass needle and you say, okay, my bearing is north, 35 degrees, east or west. And so you go on these, or, you know, south... 60 degrees west and you go on that i think that's more intuitive but because we're a computer-based world now it makes no sense anymore
1: i say i wrote a package when i took structural geology and entered a field that converted all this because everybody did it. You know, you had to plot them <laughs> on stereo nets and everybody reported things in quadrants. And so I converted it all. It was just a pain.
0: It, uh, it is a pain. And everyone is scared to death of the quadrant compass. It doesn't make a lot of visual sense when you look at it. Well, for some reason it doesn't. To me, it's completely more intuitive. Um, students get really confused about that stuff too. So we'll yeah. just move forward so, as mutely. <laughs>
1: Now that we've thoroughly confused you, Uh (laughs) uh, the basic idea is we want to measure the orientation of the rocks in space.
0: Right. Right. And so what you put on your map is a great little strike and dip symbol, right? So you actually have a protractor out there with you in the field, and you put the strike angle, and you just draw a little line. And there's a little tick mark to that, 90 degrees. So this symbol looks like the little baby T in Tetris, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you put that dip symbol pointing whichever direction your dip is. And you can write the magnitude of your dip directly on there. So you've got this little T symbol and a number. And there you go. So now you know the orientation of those rocks on a two-degree map or a two-dimensional map.
1: Now, the question is, where on your map did you put that (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) So this is where we get into a skill called orienteering, which is obviously not just a geological skill. Um, This is something that if you ever go hiking, if you're in Boy or Girl Scouts, you'll probably cover this too. And that is trying to figure out where you are on a map.
1: Right. And so you're looking around you to try to find things like landmarks some way that you can roughly triangulate your position and track yourself along the map but on on a map like that where you're looking at a couple square mile area you can get yourself to within a pencil mark width
0: yes yep you absolutely can and so you do that by taking bearings to different landmarks right and this is an exercise that we go through that I go through just to teach students how to take a bearing in general Um, We have a place at the university called the North Oval, right? So it's a big, grassy outdoor area that's fairly large. And conveniently scattered around the North Oval are a bunch of different monuments, stuff like this, a bunch of different buildings that have actually different (laughs) cornerstones that are made up of different rock types, which is wonderful. (laughs) And so we have an, um, an exercise where I had gone around the Oval and i took bearings to different things like the red we've got those awesome red british um, call boxes all over campus they don't oh, have yeah. they don't have phones in them anymore but <laughs> they're still there <laughs> so we have stuff like that so you take your bearing from the big sycamore tree to the call box and you do this by you orient your button at about waist level because that is sort of the most stable place right your hands aren't shaking it's not up by your face you don't have to hold your arms out and have trouble getting it so you hold it down and the Breton actually has on the lid there's a mirror so the mirror goes towards you and then there's a large peep sight so kind of um a big pointer basically and so you always point the pointer where you want to go you line up the pointer in the mirror and there's a there's a mark on the mirror showing the very center of the mirror so you line up that And in the mirror, you should be looking at what you want to go to. So the big red call box. Okay? Make sure your compass is horizontal, and all you do is read that north arrow. That's your bearing. Simple as that.
1: Right. And if you do this to multiple monuments, you can figure out where you are, like I said, really accurately.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So we also, I make them figure out their pace. So how long (laughs) I make them mark, walk out 100 foot tape measure a lot more than one time Um, right like nine to ten times and figure out how how big their pace is and so once they get their bearing they'll pace to that object and essentially they build a map of the north oval and it's super great nice so now they know how to build a map like that but just like you said, this is important for triangulation once you're actually out in this mysterious field so you can figure out where you are.
1: Right. And so I'm, I'm curious how you learn to do this. <laughs> when you take a strike and dip measurement and you figure out where you are on the map, mm-hmm. do you just use your protractor and draw it on there and move on? Or how do you mark and notate your so, measurement?
0: I use the cheater direction, the way of doing this. I call it the cheater method. It seems like it's super easy, but this is actually how a lot of people are taught triangulation. So you want to find a landmark that you know for sure, right? Um, the place we were at this last weekend, there's a mountain called Little Baldy, and it's the only right. mountain around, right? So it's this very prominent hill, and you can see it on the topographic map, which we'll get to here in a minute. And so what you do is you align your map in the field to north. You do that because you've got a compass, so you know exactly where it is, <laughs> okay? And we've got section lines on the map. So here in the U.S., we have these, um, the township grids, section, township, and range grids, where we have these sections that are square mile, and they all basically point north-south. So you align your map and your compass to north-south. Now, you've taken a bearing to that point, so you know the direction it should be, right? And you can rotate your compass on your map. You're basically using your compass as a protractor till you're at that bearing. And you draw a line from Little Baldy, just a line, because that's the thing that I oriented on. Now I need to find something else. It's best to use more than two things, but you can do this with two. And so we use a lake. There's a big lake. It has a very obvious shoreline. So you see the obvious shoreline on the map. Same thing. You take a bearing... You align your map. You basically use your compass as a protractor. You rotate your compass till it's in that bearing, and you draw a line. Those two lines are going to intersect. Ideally, that is where you're at.
1: Right. So now, that's how I do it. Well, so that's a, that's, that is a cool trick, but I was actually asking a simpler question. Oh, no. <laughs> so once you know where you are... How do you mark your stripe, strike and dip on the map? Do you just draw the symbol and write the number and move on? Oh, or?
0: I gotcha. <laughs> well, I just explained triangulation. and now So now you've got all these lines everywhere, which sucks because now your map's all crappy. But <laughs> um, So if I'm taking a strike and dip, I put a dot and a number. And then in mm-hmm. my field notebook or... I have a big map board that I carry around that I usually just like fold over the back of the map. And I put that same number, I write down the azimuth and the magnitude and the dip direction, and then I draw that little strike and dip symbol that we discussed earlier, using my handy dandy little bitty clear protractor. So now my map has a number, so that's the point I stopped at. It has the strike and dip symbol so I can see the orientation of the rocks at a glance, and then I'll write any notes about the rock in my field notebook along with that number, so I know exactly where I was.
1: So that's pretty close to the way I do it. I draw the symbol on the map with the clear protractor, and then in the center of the symbol where I have triangulated my position, I use a safety pin that's on the lanyard around my neck, And I poke a hole in the map. And then I flip the map over, circle the hole, and put my number on the back so I can always read it.
0: Uh And it doesn't
1: get obscured by all the lines on the front.
0: Ah, gotcha. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So that's
1: why... And I've seen other... I don't remember where I picked this up, but uh, you'll see other people with a safety (laughs) pin on a lanyard around their neck.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think that's how the professor that taught us. That was exactly how you did it, too. I carry around this big... um, 11 by 17 map board well it's a little bit bigger than that because it holds an 11 by 17 paper so i always have sort of a spare sheet of paper in there and just right oh, next yeah. to it but but this is good this is a thing i try to stress is that you know you have to have by the end of the day this map gets really cluttered and i mean as gross as it is you're sweating on it it gets all smeared <laughs> And nasty. So you have to make sure your numbers... It's probably raining at
1: some point. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Yeah. So you have to make sure your numbers go together. Like, that's the most important thing. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, you don't have... Even when we're doing these things for practice, we don't have the luxury. We cover a lot of ground. So we don't have the luxury of coming back to a lot of places. So you really have to maximize your interaction with every rock and move on, thinking that you'll never get to come back and see it again. Yes. So... That's a that's a lesson that's always sorely learned, no matter how much <laughs> yeah. you warn against it.
1: <laughs> okay, so now we've got the strike and dip. We know where we are. We've marked it. What else can we do when we're in the field? What else are you teaching your students?
0: Um, well, let's see. Once you do that... Um, you get down to the whole like making the whole map together right so we sort of discussed how you're pulling together how you take these strike and dips how you write them down and then the orienteering aspect um but i want to talk a little bit about topo maps in general because that's what we always use as our base maps
1: okay so topo maps are the maps with lots of contours on them that looks sort of like an mc Escher thing if you're not used to looking at them (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right, exactly. Um, So students see this in intro geology, whether you're a geology student or not. If you take an intro geology class, you'll talk about topo maps. Um, (laughs) As we had a student when I was in graduate school, uh, my office mate, she came in. um, One of her students came in from her intro non-majors lab. (laughs) And my friend said, okay, get your topo map out and we'll talk about it. And she goes, is that the one with all those lines that go everywhere on it? (laughs) Yes. Yes, Yes, that's that's the the one. one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what are those lines? Um, Those are called contour lines, and they connect lines of equal elevation. It's pretty easy.
1: Right. So everywhere that you're so many feet or meters above sea level, you connect it. It's just like looking at a weather map.
0: Exactly. Um, (laughs) It is exactly like looking at a weather map. (laughs) But isobars or all other kinds of things um, that are connecting these lines of equal whatever you want. So elevation in terms of topo maps. Um, There's also a bunch of other stuff on there, cultural features, um, names of geomorphological features. So you'll have different peak names, different valley names. You've got rivers, all that kinds of jazz.
1: Generally like locations of mines. Mm
0: -hmm. uh, Gravel pits.
1: Sometimes sometimes major road names.
0: Yeah, yeah, sometimes. Um, They'll usually have the large highway numbers on there um we're never anywhere near large highways so
1: (laughs) no large highway means more than single lane dirt road in this case
0: right exactly um so we take this topo map which lots of people use and like when you're hiking that's basically all you use right you've got this topo map on your gps or in your fancy little weatherproof bag or whatever you use and that's it but we're turning those into geologic maps
1: Right. So we're drawing the geology exposed at the surface on top of the topo map along with our measurements.
0: Right. That's exactly it. And um, to come back to measurements, right? So we've talked a lot about strike and dips, what the little symbols look like, stuff like that. Um, Another thing that you can measure in the field, and this sort of goes along with how you can check where you are on a topo map, is you can actually use the Brunton to measure vertical angles.
1: Okay, so if you're at the, the base of a slope or something like that, you can compare the spacing of the contour lines, uh, figure out the angle from that, and compare it to the angle that you're measuring.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, there's like a little peep sight um, in the Brunton, and you hold it out up the slope, and you can. there's an inclinometer on the Brunton, and so you can tell... Basically using that mirror again, you can move that inclinometer and you can tell the exact dip of the slope. Um, That's always great. You can also use it to calculate the height of things that are far away. So you could do the height of a cliff and you can look at your topo map and see if that elevation change matches um, what you're actually measuring in the field. It's just another way to tell exactly where you are.
1: Right. So you can put that on there, put your striking dip. Uh There's a, When we say draw the geology at the surface, we're not necessarily meaning in an artistic way. We're meaning more of a, you're going to color blobs where the same type of rock is exposed.
0: (laughs) Yes, blobs. That's what they look like. Now, I mean, the maps
1: can get very artistic in the end. (laughs) Yes. But in the field, you're not going for artistic.
0: Oh, gosh, no. You're trying to cover as much time or as much space as possible because you only have a certain amount of time there. Um, So... When we say different rock types, so the lines between different rock types are called contacts. So you're going to have contact lines on your map. Uh, John, you mentioned right. earlier faults, because obviously that's what you love.
1: <laughs> of course, yeah. yes.
0: Yep. So there's lots of, lots of faults. Um, and then you've got all these strike and dip lines. And so these are going to tell you the orientation of the beds you're on, but then you also have these large geologic structural trends. And so once you get all those strike and dips, you're going to add stuff like a trend line, so you're looking at a folded rock, whether it's an antiform or anticline or a syncline, stuff like that. You can figure out the trend, and you're going to draw an arrow showing that trend. And then you'll probably make a cross-section, so those lines will be on there as well.
1: Right. Right. And I think making the cross-section, which we've talked about before, is one of the really key parts because you're in the field and you're drawing all this on there. And, yeah, you're thinking about it, but it's still, you haven't settled in on the story that the map and that the data is trying to tell you until you actually have to sit down and reconstruct a cross-section.
0: It's absolutely true. Uh, It's something we just talked about in class, and I stress this all the time. And I say, even though no one believes me, Uh, You know, this class, although it calls on you to do all these really hard things, it should be the easiest class you've ever done because you are just looking at a rock, writing down where you are and what that rock is. It's just observational. (laughs) What do you see? Write that down. Move on. So that should be pretty easy. Obviously, in practice, it's a lot more complicated than that. (laughs) Right. If they were
1: all granite sandstone contacts or something, it wouldn't be bad. But when it's like... (laughs) The red sandstone with the slightly pinkish sandstone, <laughs> it can be really hard to find.
0: Oh uh, Yeah, then it gets a little more difficult, <laughs> uh, that's for sure. And obviously, you want to think that all rocks are these beautiful dipping plains, but rocks weather, so they're all bumpy and awful sometimes, so it's hard to tell. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't work out that way, but... It should be easy. And I, I make it a point to say, you know, keep these interpretations that you come up with as you're going in your mind. Write them in your notebook, but make sure they're annotated differently so you know it's an interpretation.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Highly important.
1: <laughs> well, and write down everything oh, uh, yes. that you encounter. I mean, even down to like the weather. Because there have definitely been situations where I've been trying to go back into my notebook and been like, let's see, it was raining that day. Uh (laughs) And so you can go back and find that and you're like, oh, yes, there it is.
0: (laughs) It's so true. Everyone thinks that's so silly and it's hard to teach people the importance of that. But so for one of my dissertation areas, and I know you went there a couple of times with me, um, you know, I went back to the same spot 20 times. And so in your head, it's impossible You'd like to think you remember the rock that well, but what you remember is the human stuff. You know, I was really cold that one day, and I remember that we were sampling it when it was really cold. And so I can go back in my notebook and be like, oh, here we go. It was 25 that morning when we started. (laughs) You know? Right. And so. And here we made the
1: annotation that some creepy person came up and (laughs) wanted us to get off land that wasn't theirs and
0: stuff like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, this is before when we were doing this, which isn't really all that long ago, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe longer than we'd admit, but, uh, you know, there weren't, now you take a picture of the rock with your cell phone and it's a beautiful high resolution picture and it's geotagged. That wasn't happening. No,
0: no, not at all. I think I had a flip phone on
1: the first one of these trips. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was pre-iPhone.
0: Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, And we talked about this in class this week too. I actually hazard against just taking the pictures because unless you're John Lehman, you're not going to sit down after you get back in the field and immediately like rewrite the names of, you know, this was this rock, this was this rock. (laughs) It's going to sit there for years and you come back to it and you're like, crap, I didn't write down any of this. I don't know what it is. I took this picture so unless you can annotate the picture in the field which is much easier now right this did definitely mm-hmm. didn't exist um they're not a ton of help
1: so, right
0: there is that
1: though i mean i remember hearing stories of field mappers of old with their film cameras and a like a gridded notebook page uh-huh. Of, you know, exposure one is this, exposure two is this. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's sad because we've lost the art of sketching now. Because if you look at some of these old time geologist notebooks, they didn't need photos because they'd sit there and sketch the rocks and they look like photos. I mean. Oh, it's true. They're unbelievable. And the value of this is that, this is hard to teach too. The value of this is that you have to sit and think about it while you're doing it. And geology is Mm -hmm. a lot of sitting and thinking.
1: It is. And it's also nice because if you're going to sketch an an area, you need to get somewhere high, right? Exactly. And you want to do it before you go out and dig into the details. Mm -hmm. So what that generally means is you're sitting somewhere high, looking over the terrain below you first thing in the morning. With coffee, most likely. <laughs> uh,
0: if you're Jay Menton you are, yes.
1: <laughs> th- th- there are worse things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there really are. And it's like you're taking pictures and you just run through and you get it done to get it done and turn in the assignment. And that's fine. You know, you get it done to turn in the next abstract for the next meeting. That's fine. But there's a lot to say about sitting down. And whether you're a good or a bad artist, I mean, I make all my students do this anyway. And I'm not wonderful. Um, Yeah just sitting, stopping, being quiet, thinking about all the ground you just covered, what structures you're looking at, how does it tie in to the bigger picture? I mean, that's ultimately what you want to do as a geologist. And this is the information you want to glean when looking at a geologic map that somebody else has drawn.
1: Right, and you know we said that there's not a lot of people going out doing boots on the ground geologic mapping now. So how are the modern geologic maps or mini geologic maps made now?
0: Right. So before we say that, we have to ask, what type of geologic map are you looking at? And so surficial maps are probably more common. And it's exactly what it says it is. A surficial geologic map shows everything on the surface. Basically, if you took an aerial photo of the area and you translate that into a map. And that's actually how a lot of geologic maps are made.
1: Yeah, you take these stereo aerial photos and you trace them.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So back in my day, <laughs> when I took this <laughs> class many moons ago, we had these stereo aerial photos and then stereoscopes that you set on top of them. And then you sat there and tried to make them, orient them just right so they would appear 3D to you. And that's what people would do with the USGS. And, I mean, they still do it on a computer now. Um as you go in on that on that aerial photo and that's how you make your map because these are big areas and it would be a lot of boots on the ground to map them all.
1: Right. And generally there you're not necessarily subdividing a sandstone. You're saying there is right. this group. Yes.
0: Uh, <laughs> exactly. Cuz you
1: you're dealing with the kind of contrast you can get from an aerial photo. Right. Uh, another limitation is this doesn't work well with vegetation.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is actually your home state is my favorite example of this, and I love to show people this. Um, one of the field trips that we sometimes take in this class is out to New Mexico, and we go and we map this anacline that's just outside of Albuquerque, the uh, San Ysidro anticline. It's beautiful, and it's New Mexico. There's no vegetation at all to get in the way of the rocks, right? So... It's a beautiful mapping area. You go out there, you make your surficial geologic map, and then you come back to the office, to the classroom in this case, and you look at the aerial photo, and it's just as good as if you were standing there. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. You can map the whole thing on the aerial photo, right? Which no one gets too bent out of shape about because the trip is so fun and it's such a nice area. Right. You go to Arkansas, (laughs) and you go to, say, Hot Springs. (laughs) The rocks there are so messed up. The Ouachita Orogeny messed up these rocks so bad. It is so structurally complex, right? These poor things got squeezed and squished and overturned and sawed off and faulted and everything. And it's the most interesting geology there is. Aerial photo? All trees. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's so sad so sad yes (laughs) (laughs) so yes um some places are very difficult
1: (laughs) all right so so that's a surface map or surficial map Mm -hmm. but what about bedrock maps those are your interpretation (laughs) of what's beneath all the surface junk
0: right exactly so what's missing on a bedrock map is stuff like um alluvium So deposits from rivers or colluvium, which are like sort of mass wasting deposits or gravel pits and stuff like that. You have to guess, I mean, this is a very educated guess, (laughs) at what the rocks are beneath there. So it doesn't necessarily mean subsurface stuff, right? It's just what is the bedrock, the underlying bedrock right there. Right. So. Which
1: means that you have to understand a lot about your area.
0: Yes. Yes, you do. (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, some places you don't. There's not a lot of surficial rocks, so a surface rock and a bedrock map might look a lot similar. But in places where you have a lot of rivers, especially rivers that are moving around a lot, you got a lot of floodplain deposits, it can get a little bit harder to understand. And so boots-on-the-ground geology is really important in those cases because you really need to know where those contacts are because when you're interpolating it underneath this huge alluvium deposit, you need to have a good idea.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, they're both really useful, and they're useful in different ways, and we study both of them, and that's also sort of part of this class is, as we talked about earlier, you're always going to be consuming geologic maps. You know, Both of these kinds of geologic maps plus a whole slew of other ones we haven't talked about. And you can get a lot of information from them, even if you're not the one that made it.
1: Right. And, you know, so you can look at it and try to figure out the deformational history of an area. So what order things happened in. So maybe it got folded and then it got faulted and then it eroded and then it tilted. Or, you know, there could be some really pathological set of circumstances.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, And also just stuff as simple as the nature of the contacts. You know, are these erosional contacts in between these rocks getting deposited? If you're looking at sedimentary rocks, was there time between them? Can you tell that by the spatial orientation of those contacts? Were there igneous intrusions? We've talked a lot about those on the show. Um, Can you see those on there? What do those contacts look like? Stuff like this.
1: Right. So you really do learn a lot by reading reading the map in a more complicated way. It's a map that you can stare at for hours.
0: <laughs> exactly. And if you want to look at one of these, and especially one that shows a really good erosional event, um, just search like geologic map of the Grand Canyon. It's just beautiful because, I mean, the Grand Canyon is this great place. It has like 2 billion years of history exposed. And you can see a lot of that in the rocks um, on the on the geologic map. So it's really cool. That's one of the ones that we look at very frequently in class
1: right and if you want to get a little bit better handle on this stuff uh, there are these books they're not for every state but your state might have one you should check the roadside geology of blank yeah
0: yeah so
1: uh pennsylvania had one colorado has one arizona new mexico uh
0: oklahoma's is getting written as we speak
1: Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. So, and these books have, by region of the state, some interesting geologic places, tells you how to get there, and then it shows a simplified geologic map, and then three or four pages of explanation about what happened there and how you can tell.
0: So that's an excellent way as just a four funsies, you know, you don't want to go through four years of geology to get to my class. (laughs) Um, That's an excellent way to start to learn how to read them
1: yeah and it's just fun too if you're going to be taking a long road trip you know plan a couple of pit stops and see some neat geology and take 10 minutes to read the story walk around have a good look and then you're all stretched out and ready to get back in the car exactly but well i think that about wraps up what you teach doesn't it
0: i mean yeah in in a short amount of time (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, Just sort
0: of an introduction to kind of the tools of the trade if you are field mapping and what the whole point of these geologic maps are. Um, so often, you know, I had a student that said, I once looked at a paper map with my grandpa. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> paper maps are going going away, but they're still very relevant, especially in your working career as a geoscientist.
1: Right. And, you know, everything that we talked about on here is probably a good part of a week or more in your class. Oh, yeah. Like measuring these different things, it takes a lot of practice. Uh, Measuring the thickness of tilted beds takes some practice with an interesting instrument. So there's a lot of background, but this is sort of the overview of what happens when we go to the field.
0: Right, exactly. That's that's what this mythical field is.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that means that it's time. For everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper friday Yay!
0: everybody's asleep now no bells today <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you found this fun paper and i was surprised because it's not from bmj
0: <laughs> <laughs> i know i figured i needed to branch out i can only <laughs> we can only have so many scores in a row right from there right um so this actually it came from a gizmodo article and the article is a little bit different than the paper the paper is kind of a follow-up on what this article is um so the paper is evolving transport networks with cellular automata models inspired by slime mold by Sampanis et al and this is in um, transactions on cybernetics so this seems like something you would pick out Really? It does.
1: And I will say I went I read the Gizmodo article first, right? Mhm.
0: Yeah. And
1: cuz it's two or three paragraphs. Yep. And then I read the comments. And
0: <sighs> oh, the comments were so frustrating on that.
1: I say as you know, comments online are generally just yeah, seething should, cauldrons. You
0: shouldn't I've done it.
1: <laughs> uh but in here, I was shocked at how much misinterpretation there yes. was.
0: Yes, and that's... And
1: this is exactly why we do fund Paper Friday, is to show that things like this may seem not relevant, but they really are.
0: <laughs> and that's why I picked... This research group has published a whole lot on this, so that's why I picked this paper, because it actually sort of addresses a ton of the comments that were that were made. I mean, not on purpose, but, <laughs> but it winds right. up doing it. Um, yes. So the Gizmodo article, slime mold and highways take the exact same paths, and... <laughs> It's really weird. So, these slime molds are these, like, unicellular gross things, right? I mean, I don't know how to describe them. I'm a geologist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what they do is they took a map. They didn't take a map. They put a Petri dish on top of a map, right? And at major cities, they put little blobs of nutrients. So, in this case, oats. And then they deposited slime mold and said... Go for it, slime mold. (laughs) And so over several, several days, the slime mold tries to get from oat pile to oat pile. And it turns out the path that they take mimics a lot of major highways.
1: Right. And this is where the comments were frustrating, because first people were saying, this is totally insane. Humans follow, you know, topography, geology, uh, somebody thought the slime mold could see the,
0: <laughs> the, the highway The map. roads, and we're just looking at them underneath, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, and no, those are all missing the point. The point is that it's an optimization problem. Exactly. How can you take the least amount of energy to get from here to there, from this nutrient source to that nutrient source, or for us, from this city to that city? And it makes sense that we try to take roughly the shortest path.
0: Exactly, and so that's the whole point of this, Like, why would you ever do that experiment? What's the deal? Well, that's sort of a classical problem is trying to find that shortage path.
1: Right, because let's say you have a network of cities like we do or a network of nutrient sources like this. Well, it's not as simple as putting a straight line between two dots anymore. You have to build a network that's optimized for everything. Right. And this is, like you said, it's a famous computational problem. Yeah. Uh, And if you... (laughs) If you weight all of the paths in this equally, so say that it's not more important to be able to get from these two major cities, it's just as important to be able to get from them to the little towns, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, It's the exact same thing as solving a maze computationally.
0: Right, Right. which they've had slime molds and mazes numerous times. Right. So I think this is a really cool like, computer analytics but based on nature and i don't think i understood how much of these algorithms that we generate um are actually nature inspired as they say in here
1: yeah definitely i mean there's a whole field of genetic and evolutionary algorithms uh that have things that are that mimic things like ants where Ants, as they go to find food, will lay down pheromone trails that other ants follow. The more ants follow the same path, the stronger the pheromone. So more ants will follow Mm it, reinforcing it. Old paths die out. Uh, So that is modeled in a computer algorithm. Uh, Particle swarm optimizations, actual genetic crossover, all kinds of things turn out to be really good at solving difficult problems that it's not easy to come up with. An analytical solution
0: for and this is so interesting because I wouldn't think this would happen but I mean this is what this plasmodium this slime mold um, does so it has these little tubular networks in between these nutrient sources and you can use this to optimize things that's the whole point of this um, and so this paper actually takes a bunch of different experiments that they've done before in different – using different maps, essentially, of different countries and tries to make this algorithm that – this cellular automata that approximates what a slime mold – I mean, I don't want to say is thinking, but that's true because it takes a long time (laughs) for slime molds to do their thing, right? And the whole point is optimization. And so they're trying to make an algorithm that thinks like a slime mold,
1: Right, and it turns out the algorithm would run on a pretty mediocre computer in under 10 minutes, and the slime mold took three to five days.
0: Uh, I love that, that they said it's just commercially available instead of mediocre. That's what they said.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was an old yeah. kick-around laptop yeah, uh, from was. the specs. But, <laughs> you know, the, the algorithm does a really good job of following what the slime mold actually did, uh, almost to the point of looking overfit but not quite
0: yeah i was surprised by that too um so you know the paper itself is concentrating on uh implementing the basic dynamics of the computing capacity of the plasmodium which i thought was really interesting but they're not the first people to use slime molds to do computations lots of people do this Um, But then you've got this model that you can highly and easily parameterize, right? So you can emulate these different conditions that you would want to um, and sort of exploit the natural orders the slime molds take for your own optimization purposes.
1: Right. So in other words, you're turning a bunch of knobs to try to get it as close to the day as you can Mm -hmm. to tune it.
0: Yep, exactly. Uh, I actually found, um, (laughs) shockingly... You know, this paper's kind of long, but I actually found the math to be very interesting <laughs> in this.
1: Yeah, yeah no, there's a lot of math in there. If you're not familiar with some of the, you know, union and set notation, and that kind of thing, it might take a second. Yes. Uh, but I, I will say, looking at the figures that they've gotten here, where they compare the algorithm to what the real slime mold did to the road network maps... Mm-hmm. Uh, gizmodo overstated a little bit by saying follows exactly
0: yeah yeah it was
1: a clickbait headline (laughs) the slime mold and the road network maps resemble each other yes yeah neither (laughs) found the perfect solution
0: right so they have a statistical analysis of how closely related they are which it was closer than i thought but it's up to 20 percent error in some countries and and that's because of things like geography Right. You know, roads actually have to follow (laughs) certain.
1: Right. We'll go around the mountain, not over or through it. Right. On a 2D plate in the petri dish the slime mold doesn't care.
0: Right, exactly. Um and so some of the things that go into the algorithm are um you know they would put these they call them nutrient sources in places big cities where big cities are, right? And the slime mold has to make it from nutrient source to nutrient source. And so the algorithm would sort of reset at each nutrient source to make it a new starting point and then they'd find the next one and so on and so forth. Um this so is what I thought was interesting when they're talking about optimizing this algorithm, (laughs) some things that they can do is selectively place these nutrient sources, and this is, you know, within the computer, and put them at different distances and have different sort of things associated with them that would effectively slow the slime mode down. And they can do this to actually (laughs) um, replicate something that would take a long time, like if you're trying to build a road through a mountain, so a tunneling process or something like that. And now you can get an idea of how much that's actually going to slow down your efficiency when building a roadway. I thought that was right. really Right. So really now cool. you're
1: effectively changing the weight of each edge in this graph.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, I thought that was a really neat thing, too. And they're like, you know, you can do this with a slime mold and wait two weeks, or you can do it in this algorithm. So.
1: Right. Uh, so overall, this was really, I, I liked the paper because they actually did it with real slime mold
0: yes right exactly they had several experiments using a bunch of different maps um with slime mold they have a really long paper that has to do with greece and apparently the slime molds did a really good job when (laughs) in greece or i guess i could say the ancient greeks did a really good job
1: (laughs) right and i mean you know you think about it it's like well our road system isn't perfect so maybe it could get a better solution Mm -hmm. Uh.
0: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) not
1: necessarily one that we're going to implement for logistical region reasons but but it's an interesting way to do optimization and it doesn't take any power or programming
0: right exactly um i thought it was a neat little story and i picked a computer paper i just wanted to point that out
1: (laughs) you did and did you look at the uh the author bios at the end where they have a little paragraph about each author
0: (laughs) i did see that one guy was dressed as a captain and i thought that was great (laughs)
1: He, he indeed has a captain's head on. Yes. I would like to know the story behind that. I
0: would too. <laughs> uh, <Yep. laughs>
1: but if you have a fun paper that you would like to hear us talk about or any feedback that you'd like us to talk about on the show, we would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us?
0: Uh, we sure would. Keep it coming. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. John's going to teach me how to use the email, guys, so watch out. Um <laughs> <laughs> also, you can always check us out on our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're in the swung Slack chat room, swung.rocks. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Don't Panic Geo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science.